What a wonderful, wonderful privilege it is to be with you this morning, and, and I look forward to being with you this week. Uh, I have always considered it to be a, a great honor to be invited to speak or to be a part of any effort in regards to the preaching and teaching of God's Word. However, I will be the first to admit that when it comes to the preaching and teaching of God's Word, I consider myself to be the least among all my brethren. Uh, I just consider it to be just an honor to be a servant for God and just to be able to teach and to preach and to do His will. And I'm very thankful for this congregation. Your faith, of course, as Paul said to the Christians in Rome, has been spoken of, I believe, throughout the entire world. And White Oak, of course, is a wonderful uh, light in this community. It has been for uh, many, many years. And this uh, wonderful congregation, along with her faithful elders and the eldership, a strong eldership, and, of course, wonderful gospel preacher, uh, I'm just thankful to them and to all of you for this great privilege to get to be with you all this week. But before uh, I begin this morning, I would always like to remind those who are in the uh, uh, who are present that if you forget my name, that won't hurt my feelings a bit. But there's one name this week that I hope and pray that you will always think about and remember, and that's the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because it is him who we are desiring to preach and teach about. It is God that we are desiring to please and to glorify. And so I'm very thankful again to have this great privilege, and we have a, a, a monumental task set before us this morning. We're going to, uh, to do our best. Uh, forgive me if we uh, end up uh, going through this in a speedily fashion, uh, uh, but uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, and as some would say, not a long time to cover it. Uh, so this morning, I want us to think about just an overview of the Holy Bible. Now, a, a lot of the preaching and teaching that I do, I'll, I'll admit and be the first to admit, is very basic. Uh, I believe the, the ABCs, uh, the very basics, is a great uh, is of great importance that we understand. I like what Brother Eddie Brinkley said. We had uh, Brother Brinkley with us a couple of years ago, and he said something that's always stood out in my mind, and I've always remembered. He said, I keep my bucket low so everybody can slop. <laughs> and, of course, I, I, I am a firm believer in that. Uh, there are many uh, uh, who are here who have been Christians for, for decades uh, you have, of course, a great Bible knowledge and a great Bible understanding. But there may be some who are here as well who do not have uh, as much Bible knowledge. But it is, of course, a command and a necessity that we grow in our knowledge and understanding. So this morning, it may seem somewhat elementary, but we shouldn't get away from the elementary. We should not get away from the basics, the foundation of our teaching and our understanding. Well, notice that Paul, of course, wrote to the uh, young preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, when he said, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. In verse 17, he says that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished unto every or all good works. So it is the Word of God that makes us complete. It is the Word of God that helps and teaches us 
how we are to live. And the Bible is the only source, the revelation from God, that can provide us with all of the answers that we must have answered in life. From where did we come? The Bible tells us this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God breathed into Adam, into his nostrils, the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. The Bible likewise tells us why we are here. Have you ever met someone that has questioned their existence? That's questioned why it was they were alive? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. To fear God and to keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The Bible likewise is, is the source that teaches and tells us the destination after life. There are a lot of, of people who claim to be able to uh, see into the afterworld or, or life after death and so forth. But notice that the Bible is the only true source that teaches us that there are one of two destinations that we will, of course, head toward. One, of course, if, if we're faithful and if we're Christians and we're found faithful in the end, heaven will be our home. But there is a second death, and that is separation from God, and that is for those who are disobedient. So it would serve us well to have a great understanding and also to grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures. We find as well that Romans 15 verse 4, Paul reminds us that for whatsoever things were written aforetime or written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So we are, of course, New Testament Christians. We are not under the old law or the old covenant, but the Old Testament is profitable for us. So notice that when we think about the Old and the New Testament, we should understand that the Old Testament is profitable. However, the New Testament is where we find our authority. And I think a lot of confusion in the religious world today comes from a misunderstanding of this one page in the Bible. Well, wait a minute, Steve, that's blank. How can anyone misunderstand this? Well, this is the page, yes, and, and you're you right on target. This is the page that separates the Old and the New Testament. And if we have a proper understanding of this separation, then we will have a clearer understanding of the Scriptures. Have any of you seen that television show? I've only seen snippets of it. I haven't watched it all the way through. But there is a show called The Great American Bible Challenge. And I believe the, the person who emcees that show is uh, Jeff Foxworthy. I think he's a, a comedian. And I, I applaud him for creating this. I, I think if, if we can uh, increase our Bible knowledge and, and of course, uh, if we can get others interested in learning about the Bible, that, that's a good thing. But how many are afraid to study the Bible, do you think? How many people do you think have a, a, a great amount of Bible knowledge in this world today? Would you say the majority of people have a, a great understanding or Bible knowledge? No, probably uh, in the minority, wouldn't you think? that have a, a, a true understanding of the Bible. Well, why, what are some reasons, do you think, that people are uh, unwilling to study the Word of God? You think some are perhaps intimidated? You know, they, they look at this, uh, 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 what, what we would call a, a large book. You know, you think about all of the, the 66 books that are contained in this one book. Some people look at it and they say, well, that's just too much to read. 
But if little children can read those Harry Potter books that are thousands of pages long and volumes, I don't know how many there are, but you see, that's just an excuse oftentimes, isn't it? Well, it's just too much there. I cannot understand. Uh, some perhaps, of course, don't read or study the Bible because just a lack of interest. Well, of course, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 Paul reminds Timothy to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The American Standard says handling aright the word of God. So to study the Bible and to learn about the Bible, it's going to require work. And I think that's why so many people have a lack of, of Bible knowledge because they don't want to put the work into the study. Now, I, I'm a, a, a firm believer, and I will always say reading your Bible every day is critical. That's something we must do. But along with Bible reading must be Bible study. Bible study is a, a lot more in-depth than just simply reading the Bible. Yes, we, we have to read our Bibles. We should set aside time every single day to read the Scriptures. But we must also study. And that requires time. That requires effort. Well, this morning we're going to begin by looking at the Scriptures. And hopefully this morning if... If there are some challenges, and that's the, the title of the segment that I've been just honored to be a part of on, on the Good uh, News Today program, the challenges, I think for many that studying the Bible is a challenge. And so my goal this morning is to, to help, perhaps there are some here, who find it to, to, to be such a challenge that you shy away from studying. And so we want to look at the Bible as, as an overview or as a whole, and perhaps this morning, the goal is to help us to have a better understanding so that our understanding will be better. And so as we begin this morning, let's note that the beginning starts, of course, with the first book, and that is the book of Genesis. Now, the first five books are called, or we oftentimes will uh, uh, call it the Pentateuch, and and that is because the word uh, or the prefix there, pent, is in reference to five. And so we find the first five books of the scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are what is called the Pentateuch. Now, well, a lot of folks, I believe, have a difficult time studying the Bible because the Bible is not in chronological order. We've all figured that out, haven't we? I know the very uh, first time as you read the Bible all the way through, <clears throat> You, you might start to read some, some things that, for example, the first and second chronicles that you uh, perhaps had already read previously, and, and the, the timeline there is confusing to so many. But the Bible is not in chronological order. And so once we understand that, perhaps that one element or one key will help us as we study and read the scriptures. For example, when we read the book of Genesis, the, the book of Genesis is the, the name or the origins and the beginnings, the creation. And in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4, uh, notice what we read, that these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 2 and verse 4. But notice from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the existence of God is simply stated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no need to go into a long, drawn-out discourse 
to explain from where God came. There is no explanation. He is eternal. He goes as far back in, in history as he does in the future. So God is eternal in his nature. And notice that from the very beginning, from the very first verse, it is just a simply stated fact that God exists. But however, we find that in Genesis chapter 3, we read of the fall, the temptation and the sin of Adam and of Eve. And it is from that particular point then that, that God is dealing with sinful man, with mankind. Now, according to Ephesians 1, verse 4, and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, we know that the church that exists today was in the mind of God before the very foundation of the world. So this sin that took place in the garden did not catch God off guard. It did not catch him by surprise. He's omniscient. That is to say, he knows everything. He, he can declare the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46 and verse 10. And so God had prepared or made a provision because he knew what was going to take place. And therefore we see the church in existence today. But notice that after the fall of man, we find that in Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9, that God doesn't tolerate sin. We read, of course, about the great flood. Noah was, of course, commanded to build an ark. He and his family were commanded to get aboard the ark. They were saved from the destruction, from the waters that destroyed the earth. And then after Genesis chapter 9, we are introduced to a generation of people. And in Genesis chapter 11, we are introduced to a man named Terah and his son, whose name is Abram. Now in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we read of a promise that is given unto Abram. That through his seed, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. Now, once, of course, this promise is given, Abram has, of course, a, a great deal of work ahead of him. We find that he, of course, he and, and uh, Sarai at that particular time. Later, Abram was changed to what? Abraham. And Sarai was changed to Sarah. And so now we see that they're going to be blessed with a child. And through his seed, through that child, will all of the nations of the world be blessed. They give birth to who? Sarah. What is the child of Abraham and Sarah? Isaac. And so they give birth to the, the child that God has promised. And then, of course, Isaac uh, and, and his two children we read about are who? Jacob and Esau. And through the lineage of Jacob, we find comes the 12 tribes of Israel. And now we are going to put a time here approximate time, if you will, on the, the events that are taking place. Uh, approximately, and it depends on who you read and which scholars that you ask, uh, but the time period here that we're looking at is approximately 2000 B.C. Uh, I, I'm not going to put an exact date on it, but let's just use an approximate date because it can vary between who, who you read. So now we're looking at a period of time from 2000 B.C., the Old Testament covers approximately now all that period between 2000 B.C. and approximately 400 or 450 B.C. So you've got about a 1,600-year span from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the Old Testament. Now, if you think of it in that regards, perhaps that will help you 
when you're studying the Old Testament. Know that all that takes place, for whatsoever things are written aforetime, Romans 15 verse 4, took place in that span of time. Now, we find that, of course, after the, uh, uh, the birth of uh, uh, Jacob uh, and uh, Esau, of course, Jacob, of course, had uh, his children, and one of his children was who? Joseph, yes. And it was, of course, Joseph who was the brother that was hated by his other brothers, his ten other brothers. And I think that really puts a, a great uh, enlightenment on the book of Genesis. I think the book of Genesis we see time and time again deals with family problems. How many of us in here today have family troubles, family problems, and things that take place? You know, it's, it's amazing to read about Joseph and how even his own brothers would not wish him peace. How sad that is that his own brothers could not wish him well. So now we find at the end of Genesis, here is, is Joseph, and we find that, of course, Jacob, his father, they come down into, uh, into Egypt because of a famine. Um, if you account for the souls of the family of Joseph who are already there for, and you add, of course, the family of, uh, of Jacob, we are told according to the Scripture there were 70 souls that went down into Egypt. Now there's a period of time here that took place where Joseph, of course, had died. But then the history of the Israelites continued on in Egypt. But there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, did not hold him in high regard or esteem. And so in Exodus is the very next book, the second book, Exodus. The book of Exodus is simply meaning the departure or the going out. It shows how God brings Israel out of bondage out of Egypt. Now there are some important verses in this particular uh, uh, book and this is what we're going to focus on now for the, the rest of our study. We're going to look at the book itself and notice just some important teachings and matters concerning that book. In Exodus chapter 3 we find that God is known through his names. Who was it that of course Moses was to say sent him? I am. Again simply God exists. So I am. We read about the names of God, and it is the names of God that, of course, will provide unto us comfort. And, of course, that show or teach us uh, that, that he, of course, is the one that provides to us all things. God does provide. In Exodus chapter 20, we read, of course, the giving of the law. That God, of course, now has a specific law, and he's giving this covenant to Israel. And we read that giving of that covenant in Exodus chapter 20. There are these laws that they are to follow. Some 613, of course, the, the Pharisees, the Israelites added to those laws and they created a lot of these ceremonial laws that Jesus, of course, had uh, to confront during his day. But the law of God did serve the purpose for which he gave it. Now we're introduced to the book of Leviticus. Now being that there's a law, there also has to be a priesthood. And so now we're introduced to the handbook of the priests. <clears throat> That's another way to describe the book of Leviticus. Uh, can anyone tell me what our handbook, if you will, is today? What book in the New Testament would compare to the book of Leviticus? Would you say Hebrews in many regards? And, and I've always loved a comparison study between the book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews. Because in, in essence, we find that, that that is our handbook, if you will, in many regards. Uh, 
But notice that in Leviticus, we find in the first seven chapters, the important theme is one must know how to approach God. So many people today think that they could just approach God and simply be sincere about their approach. And because they're sincere, then God will allow them to approach him. Well, no, if we want to approach God, we have to do it according to his standards, according to his ways. So now we're introduced to the book of Numbers. And it is called the book of Numbers because there is a numbering of the great nation of Israel. In the very first chapter, Numbers 1, verse 46, we read of the numbering of the people, 603,550. At the end of the book, we see a numbering of 20, uh, Numbers 26, verse 51. And again, the number there, 601,730. But a couple of important lessons that we can learn from the book of Numbers is that God, of course, knows when we're complaining and when we're murmuring. You know, it is the case the Israelites were murmuring in their tents, and God heard that. That's the same idea, if you will, of us being in our own homes, perhaps laying in our beds with our heads upon the pillows, and we're complaining and we're murmuring. And as well, we learn that, of course, we must resist the mob mentality. So many today are caught up in, in the, the flow of going with the mob or the popular opinion. Now we find, as we are introduced to the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is simply the law repeated or the law restated. And we find here that life must be governed by God's truth. A very important lesson from that great book. We also find at the end of the book that Moses dies. The one who, of course, that God had called to lead the Israelites out of bondage. Moses died at the age of 120. Now we're introduced to what is known as the historical books. Then we begin in the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua contains the record of the conquest of the promised land. So what are some of the lessons that we can learn from this book, from the book of Joshua? Well, number one, we can learn that God's people can overcome, but they must have courage. There were 10, 12 spies that were sent out, that were selected from one from each tribe, and they were sent out. The 10 of those 12 came back and they gave a false report. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, they were the two that gave a true report of this promised land. And so we're introduced to the fact that God's people must have courage to overcome and that failure can come from disobedience. Now we're introduced to the period known as the Judges. After, the, of course, the events that took place and the conquering of the promised land, a dark period, a, 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 a terrible time in the history of Israel, we're told that they did that which was right in their own eyes. We're also told, according to Acts 13, verse 20, that this period of the judges was how long? About 450 years. So now we're introduced to a period of history of, of the Israelites where they, of course, fell into a, a cycle or a pattern of behavior. And I think that this particular pattern or cycle is many times emulated in our own lives. How many times do we see when people or a nation is blessed and, and things are going well, things, of course, are, are seemingly smooth on the surface, and then they become apathetic? They become uh, just 
really, in a way, they become lukewarm. There, there is no fire for God. They become apathetic. They begin to rest on their laurels, and then they are oppressed. They enter into a period of oppression, and that's what the book of Judges teaches. Israelites were time and time again vexed and oppressed by those who were around them. God would call forth a judge, a deliverer, to deliver them out of the oppression. But think of it in our, in our own lives. Many times we may become apathetic and that things are going well, rather, and, and, and everything seems to be going fine. And then, then because of that, we become apathetic. Uh, we tend to perhaps take God for granted. We tend to think these uh, good days are going to continue on and, and they'll always be this way. And then, of course, what happens? We find ourselves in oppression. And then, just as Israel did, they will cry out unto God for deliverance for help in these matters. And then God, who is faithful, when we cry out in, in sincerity and honesty according to the truth of God, and we repent, God delivers us. But then what can happen? Once again, we find ourselves being blessed, and then we find perhaps ourselves once again being apathetic. And you see how that spiral and that circle just keeps going round and round and round. Well, that, in essence, is a description of the book of Judges that humans tend to repeat the same cycles. If we don't learn or know history, we are doomed to repeat it, as one scholar once said. So we get past the period of the judges. But however, before we go beyond it, we're introduced to a book by the name of Ruth. Now, the book took place, or the events took place, during the time of the judges, we're told. So we're introduced to this Moabitess. And remember it was, of course, Elimelech and Naomi who left because of a famine and they went into Moab. And, and of course, their two children, uh, Malon and Kileon, of course, they had uh, married wives there. And Ruth, the Moabitess, she, of course, returned home with Naomi after their, the death of their husbands. And so we find here that God's long-range purposes may not be able to be seen in the short term but we know that they are there. His promises, as we're going to note during the worship hour, of course, as Peter reminds us, whether a day goes by or whether a thousand years goes by, if God has made a promise, he, of course, is not slack concerning his promise in any regards. So then we find that after this period of time, it's, we're introduced to the man named Samuel. And these books, of course, First and Second Samuel, are named after the, the prophet Samuel. And this book first deals with the transition period of the time of the judges to the time of the kings. Now, if we're going to put a timeline on this, we're going to look at approximately now about 1100, 1050 B.C. So Abraham, about 2000 B.C. The Exodus, or the coming out, approximately 15, 1550 B.C. The period of the judges, 450 years. Then we're introduced to the transition from judges to the kings, and we're looking at a period now or a time of around 1100, approximately B.C. So see how much time we've covered just in a matter of a few minutes? Uh, almost a thousand years now from Genesis chapter 12 to the period now in First and Second Samuel. Now, in First and Second Samuel, we read, of course, of the man named Saul. Saul, of course, was... Uh, anointed to be king. Remember that the people wanted to have a king just like the, all of the nations around them. God was to be their king, but no, they wanted to be like the other nations. And so God allowed them 
of course, to, to have this king, and Saul was his name. Now, Saul reigned for how many years? Do, do we know according to the scriptures? About 40 years it was the reign of Saul. But after Saul, now remember, this is a united kingdom. Who was anointed king after Saul? David. Now, David reigned in Hebron for how many? Seven years. And then, of course, he served as king in Jerusalem for 33 years, for a period of 40 years. Now, after David, we read of another man. His name was Solomon. And Solomon, of course, is known, as we're going to note in just a few moments, for having been inspired to write uh, several of the Old Testament books, uh, Proverbs, for example, uh, as well as Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. So now we find a period that Israel were, they were united in, 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 as a kingdom, and they had three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. So a period of 120 years. But what happened after Solomon? Well, we're told that one of his, his sons, Rehoboam, uh, in the south, he, of course, uh, this is the beginning of what is known as the divided kingdom. Now, in, in the south, we find Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He did not uh, seek wise advice or counsel. And so he, of course, had a lot of problems because of that. There was a man in the north whose name was what? Jeroboam. And he, of course, stole the hearts of the people. We find that many of the Levites, of course, uh, went back to the southern kingdom. And now we have a divided kingdom, the southern kingdom, known as Judah, the northern kingdom, known as Ephraim or Israel. Now, they're going to be divided for several hundred years. But it's interesting to note that the northern kingdom, Israel, out of all of their kings, some 20, how many do you think were righteous? I see Janice shaking her head. She's right, none. None were righteous. But in the southern kingdom, not even half were righteous or good, considered to be good kings. And doesn't that really show that a, a nation can be carried away when a, an evil ruler is in charge? And so now we're introduced to the period of the kings, first and second kings. Now, oftentimes it's referred to these two books as the sequel to First and Second Samuel. Well, we're introduced to the history of Israel as they are under, uh, as Israel as a northern kingdom and Judah as a southern kingdom, as they are under these kings. Now, this particular period of time lasted for Israel uh, almost 300 years. We're told that uh, approximately 721 B.C. that the northern kingdom, Israel, was carried away by a vicious group of people known as the Assyrians. The Assyrian army, remember that Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And who was called to go prophet, prophesy to Nineveh? Jonah. Yeah, and, and he didn't want to go. Why didn't he want to go? Because they were a wicked, vile people, weren't they? And, and so in Jonah's mind and in his eyes, he, he thought, well, just let them perish. They're wicked and they're evil. But Isaiah 59, verse 1 and verse 2 reminds us that God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, and his ear is not so heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from God. So no matter how far down in the mire and muck of sin one may uh, descend, God's hand is not shortened that he cannot pull him out. I'll, I'll always remember in, uh, at, at Memphis where Brother Garland Elkins shared uh, with us the letter that he received from Jeffrey Dahmer. 
Many of you know who Jeffrey Dahmer is. Brother Garland Elkins corresponded with Jeffrey Dahmer. And according now, uh, of course only God knows his sincerity and only God knows his heart, but according to the testimony that is provided, Jeffrey Dahmer obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the correspondence that Brother Garland Elkins has, whether or not, of course, uh, it was sincere, God knows. Uh, God knows his heart. But just think even someone that we might look on the surface as being so vile and so corrupt and so evil, no one is beyond the goodness and grace of God. Evil cannot sink below the grace of God. God's grace is sufficient in all things. Jesus reminds us of that in Matthew chapter 6, doesn't he? That his grace is sufficient in all things. Sometimes we, we overload the circuits. We, we bring the problems from the past on over to today, and we borrow the problems from tomorrow, and we bring them over to today, and we, we overload ourselves. But his grace, of course, is sufficient for the day. Well, then, of course, we find that the carrying away of Israel in 721 B.C. and not long after that, the southern kingdom was carried away. We're told about in around 606 B.C. that the southern kingdom, Judah, was invaded by Babylon. And so now we find the Babylonians, they are going to carry away the princes and all those who are, are in power. Remember, it was Daniel who was carried away in the first carrying away around 606 B.C. We're told uh, that in 597 approximately, there was another carrying away. And then finally in um, uh, 586, a final carrying away. But this is introducing now the period of captivity, uh, the period of 70 years when Israel would be under Babylonian captivity. Now, there is a period here, of course, that we find there are prophets, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But if you go from First and Second Chronicles, then you're introduced to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, these two books, of course, deal with the return from Babylonian captivity unto Jerusalem. Now, in Ezra, we can learn a great lesson. A project is better when it is finished than when it is started. It is, of course, the case that when you start a project for God, you must work until it is done. History will tell us that Cyrus, the, the Mede, who God had already prophesied and foretold, would decree the return of the, uh, of the Jews from Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem. Now, in, in this decree, we find that they return in approximately 536 B.C. Now, was the temple then restored right away? No. They had a job to do, didn't they? But did they do it? They were more concerned with their own houses and getting their own uh, uh, priorities and, and things in order. So we find the temple sat finally after 20 years, 516 B.C. We find the prophet Nehemiah. Of course, he was... Uh, uh, erected, of course, to uh, call for the finishing of this work. So now we're getting down to a period of around 500 B.C. So we've covered how many, 1,500 years now? Uh, in just a matter of about 30, uh, 30 minutes or so. So now we find the book of Esther. Now the book of Esther gives us the history of, of course, the meek Jewish woman named Esther. But what, what lesson can we learn from that great book? Well, we can learn that God's providence, of course, is going to work. And God is working behind the scenes of humanity. So now the book of Esther, we're looking at approximately 
uh, around 450, 460 BC. And that's really where the history, if you will, ends. That, those are the historical books. But then we turn the page to another book after Esther, and we're introduced to the books of poetry, which begins with the book of Job. Now, if, if we're not aware that these books are not in chronological order, we might be confused because we've just gone through a period of the giving of the law and a period of all of the kings and the carrying away and the return from captivity. Now we're reading about a man who's a patriarch? Well, remember, there were dispensations prior to the Christian dispensation. There was a patriarchal age in which the father, the, the patri, being, uh, patri uh, meaning the father, uh, uh, patriarchal, uh, arc meaning rule, father rule. And so the father would offer the sacrifices for his children. So now we're going to be thrown back to a period uh, before uh, the giving of the law. So Job primarily, of course, deals with the age-old question, why do the righteous suffer? Now we're introduced again to the books of poetry, five books of poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Uh, I, I know that probably there are many here today that when you're seeking comfort, and, and you're seeking strength from God, probably one of the first books you turn to, perhaps the book of Psalms. I know that that is the case for me. Uh, I just love reading the, the book of Psalms and how comforting they are. So now we're introduced to these period, this period uh, of the Psalms. Now the Psalm, of course, there, Moses uh, is attributed to writing a Psalm. David, of course, the majority uh, of these Psalms. And as well now, we, we find that God demands purity and integrity is one of the main lessons we learn from that book. Now we are introduced to the book of Proverbs, a, a uh, source of practical wisdom, as well as Ecclesiastes, of course, where Solomon sought for the meaning of life, as well as the Song of Solomon. It's a, a collection of marriage hymns that shows God's love for his people. So once we're, we're done with the, the, or the history books, then we're given the poetry books. But then after those books of poetry, we're introduced to the prophets, now, the prophets oftentimes confuse uh, uh, people because, again, you can take the prophets now, and, and if you're reading it in, in order, you may think it's in chronological order. But you can take the prophets and place them throughout the history of Israel. So you can take, for example, the, the major prophets. Uh, of course, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. That's why he's known as the weeping prophet. But then we're introduced to the minor prophets. There are 12 of those. Now, they're not called minor because of the importance of their writing. They're called minor because of the length of their writing. The minor prophets, uh, of course, were wrote by inspiration of God. And, of course, that is extremely uh, important that we understand that they're not minor because it's a lesser message, but minor because of the length. So what we can do now is we can take these prophets, and I'm, I'm going to uh, hurry up here in just the next couple of minutes, but there are three classes of prophets, pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. And all of this centers around the carrying away into Babylon. There were those who prophesied before the carrying away, Isaiah, for example, uh, Jeremiah. And then there were those who prophesied during, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then there are those who prophesied afterwards. And, of course, we find uh, uh, those prophets as well. So three classifications of prophets. And you can take each of their books and you can place them and find them where they fall in the history of Israel. Now, there's a period of about 400 years, a period of silence. 
uh, a, a period where uh, there is no inspiration given, and then that period of time lasted until the time of the New Testament. We find, of course, that in the very beginning we're introduced to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I wonder how many, uh, we talked about Bible knowledge at the very beginning of our lesson this morning. I wonder how many in the world could know the books of the Bible. Probably not very many. I think it's important that we, we teach our young, young children, and this is what we, of course, do, and I'm sure you all do as well in your, your classes, that you teach them how to, to uh, write the, the books of the Bible and how to spell them correctly. Well, now, of course, and very, very quickly as we're going to finish up, we have the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I, oftentimes I hear them called the gospels, but there's only one gospel, four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then, of course, we're introduced to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a bridge from the gospel accounts to how we as Christians live. It shows us how to become Christians. Then we're introduced to the epistles, not, not the apostles' wives, but the epistles. They, of course, are letters that teach us how to live as Christians. And then finally, we find the book of Revelation, and that, of course, is the book of prophecy. And I always will remember, and we'll close with this one last statement. I remember sitting in chapel with Brother Keith Mosier as he's walking in. I always got there a little early. And I believe we were studying Revelation that quarter, and I was reading the book of Revelation. And Brother Keith Mosier says, you know, has, he's got a deep voice, you know, uh, how he is. And he says, Brother Hall, what are you reading? I said, I'm, I'm reading the book of Revelation, Brother Mosier. He says, well, how does it end? I said, I said, we win. <laughs> Thank you all so much for your kind attention this morning.